You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. A kind of suspense. For a long time, I woke up abruptly, at attention. I lived in a kind of suspense. We come into the world whole, all of us, but we don't know that, don't know that life will be taking large chunks out of us forever. Over a year after she said she would, Hector's mom moved out of their house to a cottage in Topanga. A week later, their dog ran away. Hector and I stapled up signs with Rebel's picture in the offer of a $50 reward. I told Hector, the worst part is finding out. After that, they buy you things. I have to say, this year hasn't been as bad as I thought. Mondays and Tuesdays, Malk, my dad's assistant, picked us up after school, Green Day blasting in his Honda. We stopped for takeout from Jerry's Deli. My dad ordered us the same thing every night, chicken, broccoli, and baked fries. He made it home in time to eat with us, something my mom had tried to get him to do, but she never succeeded. A sense of tragedy flitted over his face as he surveyed the takeout boxes and plastic forks, as if we were enduring hardship together. But we preferred this food. Every Monday and Tuesday, we ate layer cake. When we used to have Sunday night dinners in our house, our mom said, napkins on laps, and he put his on top of his head to make us laugh. But now he remembered each of the dishes she cooked and spoke of them solemnly. When he called us there to say good night, he asked what we'd had for supper. With the shrimp, he'd say? Or that's the salad with the beans in it? Before, my parents had fought about which one of them would have to go to the class picnic, who'd show up for the teacher conference, back to school night, blah, blah, blah. Now they still fought, but over who would get to. Had to or get to, the Mims always did. Since the separation, she seemed in constant motion. Like Avis, the second biggest car rental company, she tried harder. Sometimes I woke up at night and heard her crying. The worst is when they tell you, I said again to Hector. I didn't like remembering that. Everything had gone granular. Then, for months after, I kept wondering when the real horror would begin. In the middle of the night, I'd jolt and think, here it is. But for most days, it was as if we'd gotten another life, but an okay one. I guess I'd been waiting to tell somebody all this. But it's not like my parents are separating or anything, Hector said. She just found a house in Topanga for the summer. Mona Simpson is the author of Anywhere But Here, Off Keck Road, A Regular Guy, The Lost Father, and My Hollywood, her new novel is Casebook. Thank you for joining me, Mona. Thank you. This is such a fabulous and intense and insightful vision of the family. And I also found it more than a little bit terrorizing, <laughs> to tell the truth. But what is really interesting is the way you've written this. You've written this from the point of view of a young man. He starts out 13, late 13, I'd say. Yeah. And he ends up 16, 17. This is like an epic novel. It feels epic. It tells the story of, of events that feel to us big and real, but it's contained in one life. The things that happen are fascinating and intense, but not. Uh, it's not superheroes. 
So, <laughs> talk about creating what I would call an intimate epic. Well, it's a love story, but it's also a little bit of a spy story. I wanted to write a love story, and I found myself starting it, but I really, it, I really started it when I sort of hit on this vantage of the boy's point of view, and that seemed right to me. I'm not sure why. I wanted a, I want I, every every love story is so big, you know, it has so many perspectives. I wanted to get a perspective of somebody. I wanted the kid's perspective because I wanted. I wanted it to be the perspective of someone who was not necessarily rooting for the lovers or not, you know, who was somebody who had his own interests and was watching more than participating. Now, one of the things I think that's really interesting to me is that by making Miles the the son, your main character, you a lot of the reading experience happens off the page. Mm-hmm. Some of it happens off the page. That's true. And I think that's really interesting because on one side, there are things that Miles is referring to that he knows about, but they're so everyday to him that we don't quite know about them. So we have to build those. Mm. On the other hand, there are things that Miles is referring to that he doesn't really understand yet, although he grows to understand more as the book goes by. And those are also things we have to build. And I think by involving the reader, giving a compelling central voice, but letting the reader build all this on the outside, off the page, it makes it so um, engrossing. I'd like you to talk about architecting a novel that happens uh, where a lot of happens between the lines. Well, a lot of what happens in this book, I think it's it's pretty apparent what happens by the end, you know, as we go along. But it's not always apparent to the narrator at the time it's happening because he's a kid and he's just watching. So it's kind of, it's the story, it's about lovers to an extent. But it's about lovers, it's about somebody, you know, it's, it's told from somebody who's watching them, who's not a part of it. So in a way, there's only so much that person can know. So it's, it, I'm trying to push the boundary of of what that is. Um, I, with all books, I find myself, um, I, I get to know the characters and their, their lives much more than even ends up on the page. I, I'm wondering, did you write from uh, other points of view than ones we find in the book? Did you keep diaries of some of these people? and, and their... Sometimes I, I literally wrote, sometimes I just thought a lot about their point of view and what they were what they were actually doing. You know, there's a whole realm of things we do that we're not necessarily telling each other about. I mean, all our conversations are on one level, but we we all think about things that we don't talk about very much. Some of them are just small and embarrassing. You know, my tooth, that one tooth that feels funny, um, or or things like that. But there, are, you know, there's a whole range of things we talk, we think about, but don't talk about. So I I try to know my characters as as deeply as I can. When you started designing the world of this book and the, the arc of the love affair and how it was going to be told, how much did you know, uh, did you keep up in the cloud before you started letting the words rain down on the page? <laughs> how much did I sort of map it out before? Yeah. I, Quite a bit. But then sometimes I'd get to a point and realize I really didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing. And then I stop and, and really 
try to deeply figure it out. So you'd have, so you'd be writing and then not know what where you'd kind of gone beyond in the the gray zone. So it was right. like the cornfield. Yeah. <laughs> or, or 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 I would be relying on sometimes with the more minor characters you you brush in one or two details, you know, and you, and you can start with that, but eventually you have to deeply understand them too. Now, uh, the the love affair in this book is really interesting because it's kind of, a, at first, it's an unlove affair in that we see a family breaking up. And you have a, a, a really poignant and powerful vision of the American family in Southern California. And a lot of this, uh, what what happens unfolds against this L.A. landscape. And I think that families in Los Angeles, especially the ones that you're writing about, have a, a different experience of being a family than maybe in other parts of the country. Hmm. In what way do you think that? Well, I think that there are more... Um, L.A. is kind of flat and hard, so the family has to make more of the rituals that define them, I guess, and that there are, you know, some places you can go, but it's all pretty much, you know, one big house after another. And so the houses, uh, you know, everything's kind of samey, I guess. And I, so I'd just like you to talk about create your vision of the family. Well, that's not my view of L.A. at all. Oh, really? <laughs> no. Well, well, tell us, uh, tell no, us your view. And, and not these characters either. I mean, I think they love their, their, their L.A. No, I mean, it doesn't seem... Um, I think families in L.A., the thing about L.A. that I don't know, I lived in the Bay Area for college and a couple years after, and I loved it. Who doesn't love it? Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't lived there. You know, I haven't raised children there, so I don't, I don't know what that culture is like completely. I know a little bit what it's like in Berkeley. I have a lot of good friends in Berkeley. Um, and LA is just, uh, the, the one, th- it's it's a little less um, monocultural, I think, than Berkeley. I don't, I think probably San Francisco is big too. And LA really is a city, even though it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it sometimes. It feels, mm-hmm. you know, people have lawns, people are in their cars, you can hike. There's lots of hikes, there's lots of nature, but um, it is a, a really a throbbing city, so there there's a lot of um, there's a lot of professional um, juice in a way in LA, probably in the way that there is in San Francisco. Well, talk about your vision of the family, because I well, mean I the families thought, are falling apart in, <laughs> for well, the most part in this book. Well, it's it's funny. I, I read in the paper. I just gotten onto Twitter. And one of the tweets, which which linked to the New York Times, was if you have a friend who's happy, you know, twenty five percent you'll have another you'll you'll be you'll be twenty five percent happier if you have one happy friend, um, which seemed like those those studies they do, but um, which is probably has a little bit of truth in it. Um, well, these two these two good friends. There's many many boys in this book, but of the of the two main boys, their families each have a divorce. And they fight each other, and that's they, they they become even closer, probably because their families are having a divorce. But um, but they don't they don't have a sort of neither one of them has sort of what I think of as an old fashioned divorce where people are really cruel and screaming and very passionate and vitriolic. They both have sort of their parents cooperate. They they maintain a sense of a family post divorce as well. So that's what I that's what I meant that's what I was writing about with these two families anyway. 
Now, uh, as, I didn't realize that was a particularly LA thing. I don't. I don't think it is. No, no, no. But it, it's an interesting uh, vision of of the family, and, and I think too that the way that you've portrayed this, because we get it all from Miles' point of view, right? Um, he's got. He's trying to keep. You know, has to keep track of his family, his parents' families, their friends. Right. And the way it's presented to us in the language you use to present it to us is very, very casual. And it assumes, you know, to a certain degree, hmm. a, a kind of a sense of being there. And it really lends this book, uh, of, gives the voice in the book kind of, I guess, what I would call the ring of truth. It feels very real to me. And so I. Oh, good. It, when you were writing this, when you took on Miles' voice, I think you do a great job of creating a oh, young, young man's so. <laughs> voice. Uh, did you feel any trepidation at doing that? Yes. I was, well, not, you know, you never feel trepidation while you're doing it. But at the end, I thought, oh, gosh, I hope I got this right. So one of the advantages of teaching is I, I offered $100 to two of my students, my male um, Southern California students, to read the book and point out any any language that seemed wrong to them. Wow. Did they, did they, did they prove much help, or did you, had you gotten it mostly right? A little help. One of them even helped me a little bit more with there's one scene where they surf, and this kid was a surfer, so he, he helped me a bit more with that. And then there were a couple points where they said, no, he wouldn't say that. Hearth, for example. I think they might even still be in the galley. One of them said, you know, Teenage boys don't just don't don't use the word hearth. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, this book is is nicely paced with like really short chapters and and they're all titled in kind of like little vignettes and almost uh, short stories. Is that how? Did, but did you write this pretty much in order? Or, or? Pretty much, pretty much in order. Sometimes I'd switch things around a bit. And and also with with regards to the chapter titles, that's an interesting approach. What what made you do that? Is this something you know? I've done it before, and it just seemed like fun. It seemed in, in keeping with this book. This book is a lot of fun, and I think that's one of the things that's very interesting because many of the uh, the situations uh, become increasingly dire, and, and um, so I'd like you to talk about creating an engaging narrator who we really like, who's going through some fairly tough times, and keeping the prose and the feel of the book and the plotting fun, even when it heads into some fairly scary territory. He's a young boy with this whole life ahead of him, and he's just coming into the fun part of his life. And I wanted him very much, I mean, in some ways it's a very, you know, who but a, a middle-aged woman would create a boy who's obsessed with his parents, you know? <laughs> but I think that's probably what keeps part of it a little bit jaunty, that I, that even at the same time as he's, you know, delving into their secrets and, and seeing a letter that's sent under his dad's door in the middle of the night and trying to see who it's from, and he's, you know, rummaging in his mother's drawers to see what her boyfriend has written her in her notes. He's, he's quite invasive. Even at the same time, he does still have a sense that this is not exactly his life, and he has things he wants too. He has a life that's just beginning. So there's also the little engine of that life. 
Yeah, and well, that kind of keeps the. That's an interesting point because the the way your plot unfolds is once the divorce is announced. Uh, That's Mile, pretty early in. Yes, yeah. Miles decides that he's going to uh, start surveilling his mother. Right. <laughs> and I think this is a a great vision, but because uh, he's surveilling his mother, there's a, a sense of distance and. Uh, to a certain degree, almost objectivity. He's just collecting data. He's uh, his friend Hector is a Sherlock Holmes fiend. So, <laughs> well, he's he's at first trying to just really find out more. His mother's kind of a stickler. She doesn't let him have a Game Boy. She limits his TV. She makes him eat healthy food. It's all terrible for him. So he's first trying to listen in on her conversations with the other moms to just get information about whether maybe she would let him watch the TV programs he wants to see. Um, and that's a kind of, that's a very natural kind of spying that kids do. And it's it's to find out something which, even if it, the answer is no, would be ultimately reassuring. But instead, what he finds out are sort of alarming things that have to do with his family's future and security and even financial viability and all that. So So he... He gets into a lot darker territory than he'd intended. And several times he, he sort of wants to stop. But his friend has gotten into it by then, too. As this unfolds, you get some great visions in of what happens when kids start finding out that their parents have sex. So there's a kind of an. Right. <laughs> talk, a horror. Yeah, yeah. Talk about the kind of the building in the yuck factor from the. The son's point of view, where at the same time the mother is kind of experiencing this romance. You have uh, these two different things, two right. different visions, and I think that's right. really clever and fun. Oh, good. Yeah, I wanted it to be, you know, to be seen by somebody who, I mean, I think there's points I'm hoping where the reader will be pulling for the romance more than the kid is, you know, because there's a part of um, he's just he's just kind of young and young enough to, you know, and sort of uncool enough to. He's just believing things and 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 screams when he's hurt and and he he's just figuring he's really this is his first sort of vision of adult love and he's got to figure out where he stands in it all too he and he's just coming to that point of life himself where he's going to have his own chances at love and his own chances at romance and he has to decide what kind of romance he really wants what temperature what what I mean. We talk about love. There, there are so few words for love in our English vocabulary, but obviously there should be many more because there are so many different kinds of love. And he's just—he's kind of a good narrator in that way because he's—he's just learning about the differences and what's possible and what's desirable and what's horrible and what's icky and all that. Well, I think too that by having this kind of uh, outside perception that it gives the the reader uh, an interesting slant on what the mother thinks. You have this kind of uh, mm. theory of, of mind going on uh, <laughs> where we know what Miles thinks, and Miles is, has a theory of what his mother's thinking and what her boyfriend's thinking and right. what his other friends are thinking. And we know more given what Miles tells us objectively, we also have our own vision of 
theory right, of mind exactly. of these characters. <laughs> so there's a great parallax vision that comes up in this book. And we have little scraps of things, you know, because because there's so much that Miles couldn't himself know or witness. We have letters, we have emails, we have all kinds of little things like that to intercept. And, and it's a lot of fun to put this mystery together. And I, I love the family, too. I mean, we haven't talked much about the family, but there's uh, he has twin sisters, the Boops, as he calls them. And he has nicknames that nobody gets their real name practically <laughs> in this book. So i like you to talk about creating the Boops, who are, are themselves. Are twins yeah. and, and sort of annoying to their older brother. But, t- you know, they're, they're, but they're quite... They're quite busy with their lives as well. They're, you know, they kind of grow up. They're, they're not privy to the whole obsession that he is and, and the mystery of it all. They're just kind of living their lives. One's a dancer. One becomes, one becomes very obsessed with animals, partly because, because of the mother's boyfriend who also is involved in animals and animal shelters. And they're, they're just always there in the way to some extent. But what's nice is that we get really get a sense of each of them individually and, you know, we can – he's kind of – as you say, they're just an annoyance to him. But to us, they become fully-fledged characters. And I think that's one of the great things of your craft in a minimal amount of words, with a minimal amount of scenes. You lead us, the readers, to create these characters who come to life for us. Oh, good. Now, uh, let's – when you created this family, you also have the father, who's a really interesting figure as well. Talk about uh, creating Miles' father. The father is 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 kind of a minor character, but still a, an important character to me. He's kind of a he's you know there's a divorce early on, so there the kids are living between two different houses. They're mostly with the mother, um, and the father is is still very much a father. You know, he does see them and 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 nobody's perfect. I mean, you see the you see the you see glimpses of his romantic life. You see the the parents' fights are become sort of familiar, but they're not there's a certain um I would say there's a certain range that Miles gets used to with his parents. Their fights they they will bicker, they will fight occasionally, but they'll only go so far. You know, ultimately, they're both going to be there for each other in some way, even divorced. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the way he sort of knows them. You know, too, now, now let's talk a little bit about Eli, uh, the boyfriend. Uh, we meet him early on, and what's interesting about him is that the way he's introduced and comes in he seems kind of a, a little bit of a minor character at first, kind mm-hmm. of a, a nebbish. And, and you do a great job at investing him with more and more uh, character, more and more presence, more, and he becomes more and more present in the characters' lives. Right. And uh, so I'd like you to talk about how much of about Eli did you know when you started the book? Did you know who he was ultimately? I knew who he was in terms of the plot. But I didn't know who he was in terms of the character, really, in the details. So you had to kind of that. I kind of I I he he changed as it went along. Really? So and and I didn't know it. It, it also was 
then once I knew him, it was just a sort of, um, I guess it was a little bit like, like the mystery writers must, it, it, it's, it's very delicate, you know, how you shade a scene, how much, how much you want the reader and the, the, the narrator even to know at a given point about the future. Yeah, I would say that that uh, mystery, the mystery genre, heavily informs yeah. this, yeah. both because the characters are interested in it, but also just the the construction. Do you, did you read a lot of mysteries, or I looked at them for sure. Yeah. Now, uh, what, who did you read, just out of curiosity? I I read a lot of Sherlock Holmes, and then I read a fair amount of um, actual forensic books, not not mystery novels, but real. Um, I read a, a biography about the guy who, who created um, forensic profiling for the FBI and, you know, stuff like that. Oh yeah, I read that book. I love that book. Wasn't yeah. that fascinating? Yeah, he was. A, he's an interesting fellow. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, you also, uh, when you're creating these characters, they have very specific psychologies, um, and. and uh, in Eli in particular, but also what I think is nice is that um, you do a great job of changing Miles' language, his perceptions, his understandings. As he grows older through the book, they Good. become richer, more nuanced. He knows more. He name drops less, I guess, or, or pretends to know less and, and just casually knows more. And, and I'm wondering about... Uh, your process of ratcheting that, you know, creating that prose voice that shifts in the book, that, it sounds really difficult. <laughs> well, that's where the fun of it is. You know, you just write, read over it and change little things all the time. But no, that's, that was the fun of this book in a way, was the choreography and the what's allowed to poke out when, you know, or is that tilting things too early or is that tipping our hand? It was, it was, it, that was... Very delicate. Uh, it, the, I never thought about that, but yeah, the book really is a, a very nuanced and balancing act. Yeah. And, and also, it's a book where everybody's telling. It's a book that, of course, tells a great story, but it's a book where everybody's telling stories. Right. Everybody has stories. Some of them are real. Some of them are not. I'd like you to talk about using storytelling in a, a book to tell a story. I mean, it, storytelling is like a plot element in this book, a, a really... Mm key one mm, well well yeah and I think um, I'm thinking of that scene where where Miles is is sort of stuck home one night and he his mom and his mom's boyfriend were there and they're talking about the boyfriend's childhood something he's not inherently that interested in but but it's so weird he does kind of get caught up in it a little bit mm -hmm. so um no, I think I think there's a way in which, you know, love stories are very complex in these days because when you think of it, as soon as you have divorce, in a way, there's no good love stories. And it's very hard to write the kind of love story we love to read. Um, as soon as there's that that admission that that, that could happen. Um, but the obstacles in this case were... You know, Miles in the, in the beginning certainly was resistant to this boyfriend. And one doesn't know if he'll get over it. One thinks maybe this might be a, might, a good thing for the mom, but that son is naturally loyal to the father and just 
wants it the old way. And and then eventually the son gets a little bit um, caught up in another kind of family they could have, a different kind of family. They do different things with the boyfriend than they did with their father and mother. Their, their father and mother were a different couple with a different spirit. And this this boyfriend and the mother do different things with the kids. So they, they sort of negotiate that culture and their own culture with their father's family now, too. As a love story, uh, this <laughs> it has, a, a, I think, a lot of terror in it. <laughs> and, I think love stories, too, have a lot of terror in them. And, well, I, and I think I, I'm thinking of a line I read actually in a Clive Barker novel where he, he talked about what he called the tyranny of hope. It's <laughs> a good... <laughs> And it, the novel? It's a good line. Yeah, it's a good line. That's what I thought. I, I thought, well, there's a name for a heavy metal band. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that said, I think um, the tyranny of hope plays a big part in this book because people, when we look at somebody, we want them to be the person we hope them to be. Right. And there's so much so much of that in this. Mm-hmm. So talk about crafting a, a love story based on this kind of... Uh, it's a combination of psychology and, as you say, a society where anything that's put together can just as quickly and not so unhappily be disassembled. Well, and I mean, I think what, what Miles and, to a lesser extent, his, his sisters have to figure out with this legacy of, of what happens in this book is really where they want to be on the spectrum because Miles was completely suspicious. You know, he was he was really a spy and on the case from the beginning, and yet that didn't protect his family either. There's only there's limits to what skepticism and suspicion can do, even if even if they they're right. Um, at the same time, there are people in the book who are perhaps too too hopeful and not suspicious enough. So it, there's a, a conundrum or a conflict, really, that, that these kids have to figure out where they belong, really, where they want their, their love affairs to stand and what, how, much real is, how much reality they want to allow into their lives or how, how much reality they can tolerate. That kind of tension really makes this book super involving. It's really tough to put down because of the, the way the, the tension is ratcheted up in this book. And... There's a fabulous character, one of the best detectives I've ever read, Ben <laughs> Orion. <laughs> I I love Ben Orion. So tell us a little bit about I like Ben him too. Orion. He's a very he's a very new kind of detective. He, he's um, the boys are kind of mystified because they're getting to the age where they sort of understand um, how much places cost, and the the neighborhood where he has his condominium is fairly expensive. And they they had thought of. Detectives from the movies as perhaps being a little bit, a little bit more low rent, but no, he's he's kind of an affluent, young, handsome guy. And what he what he does that's so lucrative um, is he does the background checks for the reality television shows. I, I put together a couple. I did some research for with real detectives, and I put together a couple of them. And, and this character also loves his favorite thing to do. Really, is is. Um, is monitor the security cases for the celebrities. So, you know, there are services apparently which celebrities hire, singers, actresses, etc. 
and these services will just manage their fan mail, and they'll go through them. And if once in a while there'll be an alarming letter from a fan that seems more than um, just admiring, that seems perhaps threatening. And at that point, they turn that over either to the LAPD or to a detective like Ben O'Ryan, who will then monitor the the person who wrote the letter. Now, sometimes it's fine, and sometimes the person just, you know, gets writes letters. But other times, these people will arrive. They'll say, I'm coming on this flight. I'm coming to see you. You know, we're meant to be together. Um, talk about the tyranny of hope. Talk about the, this is this is over the edge. They'll, you know, there are people who will come from all around the states because they've decided that Taylor Swift and they should be married, you know, and and so it's it's the job of someone like Ben O'Ryan to protect. I'm, I'm just picking a name out of thin air, but to protect the celebrity and to get the get the stalker back back on the plane home. The boys create a graphic novel, I guess we'll call it, and you had to learn to draw and, and learn about that form of storytelling. I'd like to talk oh, well, about that. Oh, well, I should say, these drawings are not mine. Oh, they are? No, I actually thanked, I, I, I hope it's apparent, I thanked, I acknowledged it in the acknowledgments, but I, I did actually talk, take drawing classes and drew the whole time. But mine were, some of mine were okay, but mm-hmm. not enough of them. So I got a kid to do it. A recent graduate from high school, I know, but um, his name is Alexander Allaire. I found I could do, I found I could do the things after a while, you know, after, after drawing every day for a couple of years, but I couldn't do the parts of like I couldn't do a hand or I mm-hmm. couldn't do the faces. He had problems with the faces too. He didn't put faces in too much, but. Well, talk about that as a, a form of storytelling, and you know, writing about. Comics is is it as hard as dancing about architecture, or maybe not so much? <laughs> I don't know. I, I love comic books, so it was fun for me, and I I got into them. Which ones did you read? Did you re- had you been reading before this book? I've or? been reading before them because I have a I have a son and a daughter. And the son is really into graphic novels and all that, so I've been reading them for years. Oh, okay, well, who's your who are your favorites right now that informed this book? Oh God, I don't know. I I think. Um, for some reason, when I was reading this book, Blankets was a was a big one. Oh, well. I, Do you know Blankets? No, I don't. Who, oh, it's wonderful. Who's it by? I think, I'm trying to think. I don't remember. Is it Hedges? I, I forget the name. Isn't that awful? People say that about fiction writers, and I, I do that to some extent with, with graphic novels. Of course, I love Chris Ware, mm-hmm. but I, I love a lot of them. This novel has a, as I say, it has such a rich and epic feel, but it's still very intimate. Um, and, and I think that has to do with you, the way you managed to use time in this book to have a lot of time go by. But the problem in a novel when you have a lot of time goes by is that you lose a sense of tension. But in this book, you never lose a sense of tension. You can hardly wait to turn to the next page. So I'd like you to talk about creating tension over a long time span in that kind of epic feel. Hmm. Well, I I looked a lot at how people collapse time. You know, it's amazing actually we're so we're so um different the way we do it now. I mean, a lot of times Dickens will just say or or um the Brontes will just say and and so I lived at Lowick for happily in this manner for the next five years, you know, 
there go five years. I mean, we would never do that now. But I, I did, I did want time to pass, you know. But it, I think, I think in this book, because the story remained, the story it was still the same story. I mean, there was still they were getting further and further into what they learned about this story, and the story still it was still not settling down. The story still wasn't resolving and ending and settling down. So I think that lent the tension in this. I think the time always has to be very much... Um, it, the time is sort of like born deeply. It's a, it's a twin to the, to the story itself. You know, some stories can't take place over more than a day. Mm. And some have to be, have to include years. Now, uh, you also... The, the boys create a, a book called Our Psychopath... Right, and, but it changes. They change the title in time. <laughs> but I, I, I'd like you to just talk about um, some of the psychological. Uh, the, this book is informed by some of that psychology. Did you explore that yourself in research, or did you just create it out of uh, the unfortunate people you might, you know, life experience or? I think um, imagination. In my own circle there was a a bit of a a liar mm-hmm. who came into our lives and and none of us suspected um so it started with that and then I did research but I've always been very you know novelists love psychology we read psychoanalytic books it's 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 sort of the same it's the same thing you know it's the same it's the same kind of complication that we like i think I've been speaking with Mona Simpson. Her new novel is Casebook. Thank you for joining me, Mona. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.